welcome to the final post-mortemy type installment of the Mano Gang Bangs On, or in my case, Crawls, sputters and stumbles <laughs> forward. God, what a month! Oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> I am your host, Jay Daniel Sawyer, and I'm joined by your other hosts, Kitty Nakian and Gail Carragher. And if you can hear some sort of like crinklies and sound effects going on, I am making myself tea. Uh, so it was a good excuse. But there's water boiling that's in the back. That's going to be quite the process. You're not naturally inclined to become a cheese. Tea. Oh, tea. I thought you said tea. cheese. I thought you said cheese. No, I said okay. tea. Oh, yeah. Making, no, that's, I am making tea. You really much, can't hear me today. Much more believable. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. Sorry that we are late. It's actually February 2nd when we're recording this because after all of that bedridden COVID nonsense. I started to get better, and then all the days in bed meant that my back seized up. Yay! Oh, no. Oh, God. So, yeah, Monday I was flat in bed, couldn't even sit up. Tuesday, thanks to many hot packs and much personal back beatings by Kitty, I was able to get up and walk around and split some wood, and that really helped. And, uh, now I am back to my normal self and on to other matters like bookkeeping. Ah, oh, yes. It's that time of year. Which We're has all doing to be it. done. Yes. Has to be done. It is. Yes. Brutal. Yes. I always, this is the bit I forget about planning an intensive writing session at the beginning of the year is better. There's a reason most writing retreats happen at the end of February or March. And that's because we get all of us out of the way before we yes. go on them. But, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 Wait, and I still think for me, January is a great writing month. So I, I feel like it's, it's always going to be it's, good. It's, it's nice to do something in January that, that changes your patterns yeah. and habits. It's true. And I, and here I was being all clever when I set up a fiscal year that was different from the calendar year. Cause I was like, that'll free up time around January and December. No, hmm. nope. Cause there's still too much compliance shit that's due this time of year anyway. So it's still, yes, the way the world works, unfortunately. Yeah. So next time I do a corporation, I'm just going to do a calendar year. Cause it's one less thing to keep track of. Oh, I have God. to say, one of the best pieces of advice I have was to, I have an LLC, not a corp, but uh, was to LLC at the beginning of the year so that it like jives with the calendar cycle. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that, that does work. The other thing I do, and this is like weird business advice from Gail, who is slightly OCD, is I call up all of my bank and credit card people and make them send me my statements as mm-hmm. monthly statements, which... They can, they will do for you if you're nice and persuasive with them or, or as close as possible so that... Yes, having that on paper is so nice. It is so it nice. Makes, and it's so not standard easy. anymore. You actually have to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you can see why they don't want to do it for everybody because then they would be sending all the statements out all at once, right? right. But, but yeah, but, but you can ask and... All of the ones I've asked have all done it for me. So cool. Um, yeah. And that's because so I use my bank account and my credit card to keep track of my business expenses. So what was your final word count? Uh, my final word count, I'm 
cheating a little bit and just giving you what I have today because it's probably about right is five two seven four two. Not bad. This is the first time we have done this that you've not just beaten me, but also beaten the nano challenge of 50,000 words. Yes, but uh, remember I started with 6K. So I, I think, uh, okay. uh, yeah. technically speaking, I still can't count myself as having one nano. I'm going to remain a nano failure. You're getting uh, but closer, someday, though. I am next, getting a lot. I'm a lot next November. Next November. Next, next November. We'll do this thing. We'll yes. do it properly. Well, you have completely trounced me. I wound up with a total between all the different stuff I was working on of 23,939. That is unusual for the record book. I have never, when Dan and I have sat down to do any kind of word challenges of even if it's just a couple hours or a week or whatever, he has always beaten me. So this is the first time I've ever beaten you on a yeah, word challenge. And, and I can't. how much your life was exploding. <laughs> right. I mean, and I genuinely can't blame it all on being sick because previous times we've done this, I've been sick, I've been injured, I've had all sorts of stuff going on. It's just that this month it was the head game in addition to being, the, the sick just made mm -hmm. the head game worse. I was having a lot well, that of works, yeah. the gear after. Yeah, I really a had a leg up. Of constant, of constant scrambling and and you started a new project too, and you yeah. started a challenging project, and I was the third book deep in a in a series. So I have to say, what? in the last session, I had a big revelation. Uh, I have a bunch but, of. But notes. before you do that, it's still a legit victory because the whole point of this is the head yes. game, and That's I true. totally fell down on the head game. Oh, so why is it a victory then? No, no, it's your victory. Your victory is oh, legit. It's my victory. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It is. It, it's good. I mean, I am. I am very happy with it, and I am. I'm very much. I have another writing retreat coming up, and I hope that I'll be able to just finish this book at that retreat mm -hmm. because of this leg up. So I, I, I probably would have slid if I hadn't. If I hadn't have definitely a couple of days, I wrote more than I normally would have because I knew I was going to have to report in. So for me, yeah, it's nice. very good. And and like I was saying, mm -hmm. I had a big epiphany for yeah, the yes, last. Yes, our epiphanies. So. It's just a really good, like I knew there had to be, uh, this is a concept driven series. And so I'm hitting certain reveals about the world and the concepts and all that. But I knew there had to be some like kind of denouement action-y thing happen during the latter half of the book, but it was kind of up in the air. Uh, and then I finally figured out what that was. So it was just, so now I, I, I pretty much know what the rest of the book is going to be and I just have to write it. And so I'm very excited about that. And it's going to be nice. ridiculously spectacular, but emphasis on ridiculous. It's suddenly, of this course. is not particularly Gale. And then all of a sudden at the end of the series, it's going to be <laughs> very Gale all of a sudden. I'm just like, Fantastic. yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing that thing. Okay. Yeah, that works. It just works well for the story though. Like yes. it's not out of character for the story. So it's going to be fun. Very well. It's like uh, it, it's like with Crud Rat, right? It starts off very serious, and then suddenly there's the whole thing with the guinea pigs and yes. all the food, and yes, <laughs> yes, 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 and then the parkour battle at the end. Yes, I feel like it is a very, it's very. I mean, with the exception of Fifth Gender, which is ridiculous the whole way through. Um, and the series will continue to be that way. Uh, that is kind of one of my styles for sci-fi is they tend to be, mm -hmm. I am tend to tackle somewhat dark subject matter, mm -hmm. um, but I can't say that way. I'm not, right. I'm not but like, the whimsy emotionally able to. The, I think the first thing that, that, that threw, um, 
when we were producing the audiobook for Crud Rat, um, we had a couple of friends come in to help us out because we were running late. And so there were four of us around the living room, all on headphones, each of us cutting a different chapter. And one of the people that was helping us out started cracking up. And we were like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, my God, suddenly there are blue nipples. And <laughs> that's the point at which the whole the whole story just goes it it doesn't stop being dark but it becomes incredibly silly as well as being dark yeah Yeah. i'm one of those people who will laugh at a funeral so i think you know or or that that instinct is very strong with me where like that's what humor is humor is for right humor is for making the darkness bearable yeah and so i i fall into it very naturally and very quickly. If you outlive us, you have to come to our funeral just so that there's someone to laugh. Yes, for um, sure. You got it. I'm, I'm, and I will look fantastic, I promise. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, it is. Anyway, so that's that's where I am with this one. And um, and I'm, I'm really happy to get to finish it. And I think I will I will manage that now that I have gotten there. So I'm really grateful for the leg gap that this January has given me. That's for Excellent. sure. Excellent. What about uh, you? How are you doing? Oh, oh, Kitty? Me? Um, How's the editing? um, I have put editing mostly on pause for um, publishing stuff and order fulfillment and that sort of thing. I'm not quite sure how to count that, but I'm doing stuff. I'm doing business stuff. You got got three paperbacks published in the last couple of days, and we've got orders going out to the backers and all that fun stuff. So, milestones. Yep. Good milestones. Yep. Um, and uh, now you're working on uh, bookkeeping and corporate well, filings I'm, and all that other stuff. Yeah, and also or, order fulfillment because there's a whole lot yeah. of orders. Yeah, it's not at all the corporate filing. Oh, like, so there, there's the normal like the normal paperwork, right? Which is fine. It's not a big deal. It just always comes at an inconvenient time of the year. And then, exactly. Mm -hmm. But then there is, we're finally in a state where we intend to stick and we're not like transients. So we've also got to go back through and we're auditing every single line from every single ledger and matching up with every single receipt to make sure that the corporation is ready to wind up so we can transfer to the new state. So that if there's ever any audit or anything of the old corporation, we've got everything in order and we don't have to worry about it. Yep. So, oh, lots of work. What a hassle. Yeah. Has to happen though. And, uh, hey, but, uh, yeah, but you've been kicking ass the last few days. It's very cool. Yeah. But I'm tired now. (laughs) (laughs) So do we have any questions? Well, I've got to report in too, because I actually did stuff. I think Man, reported. Well, I reported my word count, but uh, so I got my um, I got my uh, protagonist who's telling the story all the way up to the point where he's now in the midst of running for his life from people from highwaymen that are trying to rob him, and that's going to put him in with the river pirates, which will advance Ooh. his plot, which is lots of fun. River um, pilots. Yeah, <laughs> I managed to work in that little, uh, you know, that little farm store up in um, Nicasio that's right on the drag there. Oh, yes, I know it well. Yeah, the one I, that I, occasionally hosts like random comedy in a tiny band. Yep. 
so I put that one. I I, I put that in Iowa. In Iowa, and the I had a scene where the guy stops in there, and it was a lot of fun. That's nice. when he figures out he's picked up a tail. Um, that like someone following him. Not he grew a tail like because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not fantasy. <laughs> um, and I also had a total like. I had one of those moments of great intellectual synthesis yesterday that wound up with me doing all of the notes for the whole rest of the Substack series. So probably next week I will write the whole rest of the series. So I'll then just be able to drop, 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 drop. And then I got to figure out what to do with the Substack after that, but it'll be completing another project. Yay. So, wow, that's exciting. Yeah. All right, so we don't have questions, but we do have like three bits of feedback. Okay. Uh, the first is from Simon on dictation. We talked about his uh, dictation thing early in the month, and I'll need to check the forums too to see if anyone else slid in. But Simon says, feedback for dictation. I will definitely talk with a lot of ums, ers, etc. normally, but I seem to have learned just to shut my mouth when I stumble or my brain runs into a wall. Possibly the latest dragon is very good at cutting those out too if I do put them in. I've found dictation is very much a skill, like typing. It's definitely not just talking, especially as you need to say the punctuation. Uh, yeah, that's the that gets me a lot is when I'm dictating like emails or whatever or just notes to myself saying the punctuation is is really a pain and specifically for dialogue like saying things like quotation mark it's just oh, a lot God. of syllables to have to like yeah. pronounce and so like I tend to not do the tags for dialogues and then i have to go back and figure out who's saying what and the fact that it was the dialogue and that could, yeah for me dictation and fiction is a whole mountain that i'm mm -hmm. just gonna have to climb at a future date and i hope yeah i I'm, can figure out how to do it then i'm, I'm, I'm the same way I, I i'm thinking i may want to make it a point to learn it before i'm so old and infirm that i can't type but mm. otherwise that assumes of course that my that my arms go before my mind does and there's no guarantee about that so yes exactly that's well that's my assumption my assumption is my hands are going to go first uh, i always assume that um, all right so roland says and it turns out we do have uh two extra questions that dropped into the forums oh. just okay wire. So, okay uh but first another piece the other two pieces of feedback and then we'll go to the questions uh, Roland says, good tips on pen names in NanoGang 19. My thoughts on making it easy on authors and readers. You can have unique domains for each pen name and forward them all to one site that holds it all. That's a very good point, actually. A, uh, each domain can... One site to hold them. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> each domain can, if desired, go to a specific landing page on your site to start people off with the name of the books they expect. This is also a really good idea and not hard to do. If your pen name genres are not well aligned, have two email lists. Romance and rom-com should be okay, but thrillers and rom-com, not so much. It's mm. a fair point. With disparate genres, don't try one list with multiple groups or tags. With just one list, anyone who unsubscribes from any email will be removed from the entire list, not just that tag or group. 
Uh, do, 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 I am enjoying the show, but you all have me wishing for my own writing retreat now. Damn you. <laughs> uh, let's see. And the last bit of feedback we got was about writing retreats uh, from the original questioner, Catherine. Says, thank you for the answer to my question on the podcast. I enjoyed listening and will be hitting Google to unearth some possibilities that fit my budget of both time and money. It was especially useful, ah. to, con- it was especially useful to consider headcount. Solo, four to five writers, 10 plus. I really hadn't considered that before and the ways that would impact the stay. Yay, I'm very glad. Um, yeah, it kind of depends on how social you are as a writer and you know how... We- you feed off the energy of other writers, I think. Uh, I think I personally am very social for writer, and I also feed off of other people's dedication. So for me, the more more writers than most is, is better. I, I have lots and lots of writer friends who do writing retreats where it's just the two people go off somewhere and do it together, or maybe three or four. Um, and for them, that's their preferred. So you don't have to take my pre- my preferences. Uh, yeah. But it might be a matter of just doing a bunch and seeing which ones See really work works best. for you. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now we have a couple of extra questions from Nicole. Dear Dan and Gail, just binged all the recent episodes. Thank you for the good feedback. Not sure if this qualifies as as much of a question, but I'm finding large blocks of dialogues that has some body language and other action to break it up, but at the same time is still speaking. I think there's a verb missing there. She uh, hmm. Maybe she thinks she's finding that difficult? I don't know. Hmm. I was thinking that you kept the same person's dialogue in one paragraph, but I started doing a paragraph break with body movement or dialogue so that the reader knew that the character was still speaking because it was just looking too long for me. Any thoughts on too long paragraphs like this? I think I understand what she's asking. I think she's okay. So um, the dialogue should be attached to the segment that describes the character character speaking body language right yes. so if you're if you're removing said tags you put bit of dialogue and then you put she ran across the room or she put on her hat um, or whatever right and the she is the person who's talking because it's physically attached without a carriage return on the page in front of you and some writers will do that um where you have the quotation marked spoken words at the beginning and then the body language description or whatever and in some cases they'll do the body language description first and spoken Mm -hmm. at the end and in some cases maybe we'll do both where you have something is said body language is described something else is said in that last instance sometimes you'll break it up even if it's the same person speaking and do a secondary drop, uh, like on a different character turn of the second line of spoken dialogue. And you can either do that independently on its own with no said tags whatsoever and assume that your reader is aware that it's a continuation of the conversation in the previous paragraph, or they're adrift and your your editor is going to be like, who is saying this? Yep. Um, but yes, it can become a, like a large paragraph of dialogue if you're doing this combo technique where you're interrupting what's being spoken with a bit of description to both indicate who's speaking, but also 
break it up. Um, I what, actually and, think and, about and, this and struggle with it a lot. So. Yeah, so do I, especially when things get really long and involved. And it, it, when you, especially if you've got a style that's kind of flowy and that you go uh, stica uh, staccato for effect, as I tend yeah. to do. Um, one of the things you can do with that is you can break the blocks up just with an action by the other person. Like, for example, for this conversation, um, I, might write it, I might write it as, Gail waved her hands enthusiastically and answered the question, quote, blah, 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 end quote. Dan nodded, carriage return, blah, 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 Gail said. Said Gail. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, that that is another technique. And that puts more, especially if you use a short action, Dan nodded, like a super short sentence like that, it puts more space on the page and gives your readers kind of more of a breather. Mm -hmm. um, you can it also use, makes it easier for the eyes to track, which is an important Yep. Thing. Yeah. You can, if you're a comedic writer like I am, you can have an entire external <laughs> series of occurrences incurring uh -huh. on the sideline in this choppy way uh, i've used animals for that so like two characters are having a conversation and a cat is eviscerating a tassel in the corner uh -huh. and so what i'm using to break up dialogue is neither speakers but actually this cat you know like the yep. cat stalks tassel and that, cat that can work, so it works really well with comedy but it also works really well with suspense building if, if, you've, yes, if, you've got, if you've got something doomy approaching and you just keep referencing it in the in the interstitials, oh boy, is that really effective. One of and the it's, lovely it's things actually about, about comedy and suspense is that they're both based on timing. Yeah. Hmm. And you're using um, you're using a kind of rule of three technique with this, with both humor, horror, and suspense, all of these, where it's, it's actually a callback. And so in a way, because to use the cat example, it's always the cat, the reader's getting used to these like little asides from the cat. Um, it becomes part of the set dressing in a way that is not distracting from the actual mm -hmm. conversation for the reader, but is adding this, like, it's like a spice to the yep. scene rather than anything else. And because um, it's an additional rhythmic element, it's something else that you can use to shock or surprise when you break the rhythm. Right, yes. So I have a Mermel character in this book, just like I did in Crud Rat, and Mermels just like arbitrarily scream at the top of their lungs. And so, <laughs> and so at the beginning, when I introduced the Mermel, like everybody's like, what is it? Why is it so loud? And then, you know, by this point in the book, everybody's used to it. So the Mermel screaming, I can use the Mermel screamed as like, oh, well, there it is. But, but that is one of those things that I can use to just sort of color the background. You can use other things that aren't action as well. You can use I smell. I love playing the mermel. <laughs> because it was so much fun listening to her record all the mermel noises. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, they're, they're a fun creature to have around. But yeah, one of the reasons I often include pets and animal characters in my books is because they can be this service to pacing. And that's what, what you're, you're using this for a, the kind of pacing that comes from what, how the words appear on the page. Um, and that does affect how fast and easy things are yeah. to read for your readers. Um, and so you can you can use uh, players uh, that are you know non-player characters, right? <laughs> NPC kind mm -hmm. of characters um, for this this as well. But you can also use smells or whatever. Like my character in this book is a cook, so occasionally there'll be like 
something is catching fire in the kitchen in the background that he's forgotten about or whatever, yep. um, you know, and so the reader is being informed and he's like, ah, oh, I smell burning, but like doesn't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there's this little tension in the background and you turn around and like, you know, the soup ladle is on fire or whatever. And he's like, yeah, you know, so the, the other way, and I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever done this, but I've seen it done to really good effect is to use those side character interjections to tell a miniature story that parallels what's going on emotionally in subtext in the conversation. It can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I've seen that done to great effect. A parallel for that kind of a dynamic is something that you'll see in long running TV series as well, where the there's an A plot and a B plot and the B plot with the side characters or the guest characters Mm -hmm. calls back to whatever is going on with the main characters. True. Star Trek The Next Generation in the first, I don't know, I want to say four seasons or so did mm-hmm. really, good really good B-plot work. Yep. Um, where a lot of times you thought the B-plot would be entirely disconnected from mm-hmm. A-plot and then they kind of join up in a funny, quirky way. Yep. Um, and it was, you know, 90s. It wasn't very stylishly done, but it was definitely interesting to yeah. see done and, and um it was yeah, stylized I, I, but not stylish yes. <laughs> it's a little i should say it's a little clumsy to yeah. us now yeah. but i still think it's worth looking at if, if you want a pretty standard example of what we're yeah, talking it's about actually, it's a really plot. good one all right we have another question from nicole she she was like wanting to get stuff in under the wire and she did okay <laughs> let's see nicole says this may be the last question of the nano. You're right. It is. Ha ha. <laughs> I think this is more Gale focused. What has the transition to full-time writer as a job been like? Did mm. you write daily when you had another job? I think I've heard you say, or someone in the show has said that with this transition, writing is no longer just a fun time thing. It mm. actually made it harder to write. I don't plan on leaving my day job anytime soon, but I wonder about how well I'd weather this transition. Right now, my writing is a big part of my sanity, but there are no high stakes except deadlines I give myself. Any thoughts on the pros and cons of the great transference to being a full-time author? If I don't get another chance to say it, uh, sincerely thank you for all your answers and advice. I have always enjoyed listening to you and I've learned a bunch. And, um, and I should probably say I have no intention of leaving my current job at the moment, but then again, I had no intention of writing a novel before I read The Heroine's Journey in February. So there. <laughs> well, I'm so honored that, that that book inspired you. That's That's really fantastic. Dan, I have to ask, since I've known you, I don't know that you've ever had like a cubicle job of any kind or, or anything. Mm-hmm. So have you made this transition? Yes, uh, it was much earlier and it was a little more staged. So what happened was um, the world I grew up in, rather like the world you grew up in, was kind of weirdly disconnected from reality, but in a different way. Everyone I knew, their job was their passion. And so I had two modes of work. It was doing the passion thing, and that was what should be a real career. And then there was doing the grunt work, which should be utilitarian. And so the idea of being paid to occupy space in an office drove me 
bonkers. And I would like hyper optimize every job I ever got to the point where I wasn't really necessary anymore. And I would either completely screw up the business flow because I didn't understand that you, because I'd never run a business at that time. I didn't understand that you build Slack in so that the system can expand and contract depending on the workload. Or um, people would notice I wasn't doing anything and they'd fire me. Either way, I'd be out of a job. Um, and this happened over and over and over. And it was, it got to be a joke where I'd like get a job. I'd be employee of the month, employee of the month, employee of the month and fired. <laughs> and I was like, something about this job thing is not working and I don't know what, and no one I knew could tell me what, because everyone I had as mentors as a young adult wasn't terribly connected to reality. So, um, I decided, academics. yeah. Exactly. So I wound up deciding, well, I was going to just need to freelance. And so I started freelancing, ironically, about the time I quit writing. Um, and I went into freelance video production and um, did uh, day labor and that sort of thing. And I, it took me about a year, year and a half to really figure it out before I was able to like make something approaching a living doing things this way. And I had a great time. And I was writing at the time, but it wasn't part of the job in a way that seemed like a job because I was writing scripts. And in, in my mind, scripts didn't count as real writing. And so I sort of got around that. The only reason I went back to writing fiction other than the occasional short story I was doing for fun was because a kid that I was mentoring said, hey, you wrote a novel once. And I said, yeah, but it wasn't very good. He says, I don't care. I want to read it. And so I said, fine. And I sent it to him and he said, you're right. It's not very good, but there's an interesting story there and you ought to read it again. And I did. And I was like, huh, there is, I'll give it another try. And that's how I wound up taking writing seriously as a career thing. Yeah. So even now I'm not quite full-time writing. Writing is the most serious thing, but I also do pickup work to make ends meet, pickup work welding, which is a new thing because I just taught myself uh, metalworking, but it pays really well. Sure does. Um, and uh, I still do production work, both for myself and for other people, though hopefully the for other people part is coming to an end. And then there's publishing attached work, like doing the Kickstarter for the nonfiction books and other stuff like that. So I've got a basket of things going on there. With the exception of the welding, they're all kind of related to my writing, but the writing itself is not the thing that's paying all the bills yet. And that is, I feel like... Um when you are like, you know, sort of seeking mentors and out there in the world seeking guidance from, I'm not going to name any names, but from say some of the self-publishing gurus and stuff out there in the world, it, it does behoove you to pay very close attention into how exactly and how much they make their money. Because mm -hmm. quite a few, you know, self-touted fiction forefront fiction authors are actually making most of their money off of nonfiction courses being offered to other writers mm -hmm. or they're, they're making more money off of their nonfiction than they are their fiction, which is not like to diss this. It's a perfectly like diversification is a perfectly oh, yeah, for sure. appropriate approach, but just be aware when you're taking somebody's advice on what to do with your fiction to know if in fact they make all of their money from fiction or not, or most of their money from fiction. And which, I think, which is, which is why one of the reasons that this podcast is mostly focused on creativity, because that's something I am very confident in and my ability to make a living off my fiction, not so much. So I don't talk much about marketing unless I've got someone like you on who is very good at that. 
Yes. And so to, to just, you know, be frank, I make, I would say I haven't done my numbers recently, but I make 80% of my income at least off of actual fiction sales. That's mm-hmm. it is, it is the bulk of my income. So, um, and then the rest is sort of speaking gigs, the one nonfiction book and a couple of other like incidental little things that have come into my life mainly because of the fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and frankly, the speaking gigs sort of comes and goes. In one year, I'll have quite a bit, and then the next year, I have nothing at all. Windfall, so, you know, it's, like, yeah, it's one of those things. Windfall, no windfall. Windfall, no yeah. windfall. Um, so, so that's, that's just a complete aside. So my path is different from Dan's. Um, I grew up in a sort of like hippie commune, unincorporated artist community kind of dealy, Bob. Um, my, my parents are both uh, craftspeople's. My dad is a woodworker, and my mom is a gardener. Um, and I always thought I would be an academic. My, I, I, my, my parents are not academic and they're not particularly academically minded, but my uh, grandparents are. And so I, I was always kind of excited with that possibility. Um, and so I did a lot and I can very easily chameleonize into job work. Um, I like working. I'm good at it in general. I pretty much pick and choose what I want. So long as I can get along with my boss, okay. Um, And like with kind of marketing and sales and the publishing industry, I'm pretty good at like stifling down the obstreperous side of my personality and like putting on the persona that is required in order to get what I want out of a given situation, including in the workplace. It's just, I don't mind being performative. It doesn't bother me to be inauthentic if it gets me what I want in the end. And if what I want is a paycheck, in most cases, for most of my life, in order to then go back and pursue more higher education, then that's what I did. So I've worked worked service. I've worked restaurant and beverages. I've worked retail. I've worked tech industry. I was QA for a while for a gaming company. That was a pure straight up authentic standard cubicle job like oh, actual God. cubicles yep. oh, banks right. yep. computers I, I load yep. testing the whole mm-hmm. thing did a few of those um, and and with very few few exceptions i actually have pretty much enjoyed them all but for what they are and i i left all of those situations with new friends and new experiences mm-hmm. my preference has always been for academia i do prefer the academic environment as a work environment so teaching and educating as a ta and then as a adjunct faculty um, but i have a pretty broad like or I had, I guess, a pretty broad background uh, employment-wise, which made me very employable. And unlike Dan, I have a history of leaving my jobs while they still like me for very good reason, uh, usually because well, I am now going to England to get a master's degree or something. I should, and so, I should point out that I never had trouble getting another job. And there yeah, were a few yeah, that I was at for a couple of years that I liked quite a bit. The problems I had at those jobs, like one of my favorites was I was at... Um, I was a manager at a logistics firm for a year and a half, and I really liked it, but I still didn't understand how the business worked. So in retrospect, <laughs> it's one of those things, once you've run your own business, you look yeah. back and you're like, oh. Uh, um, they suck. In, in retrospect, <laughs> every, every place at, at that place that I had uh, fr- personal frustration, it was because I didn't understand at all how the business had to function or why it had to yeah. function that way. Yeah. Yeah. I had a telecommunications job, which was, you know, not awesome, but paid well at the, at the time. It was in my <laughs> did 20s or whatever. Did you long distance too? I did long distance. It was, yeah. We did uh, 
T1s, T1s, come on. Oh, Back in the dude. day for major corp. Like, so we handled, we brokered for like PacBell and MCI oh, and all nice. like four local large corporate campuses for businesses like applied biosystems and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was, and then handled their um, phone bills because they get, would get what's called cram and slammed all the time, which could they get mm-hmm. all of these fees and overcharges from the phone company, which they shouldn't have been getting. And you just need a, an attack dog to go in and like argue with yep. them constantly. And so I did that oh, for a boy. year and a half or something. Oh, and yeah, I left I, them I quite lasted, happily. I only lasted six months because I was doing outside sales for long distance. Oh yeah, no, I've never taken and, a sales job and, and I'm it was, really lucky. Uh, yeah, 200, 300 calls a day. And mm-hmm. I was, I won a lot of sales contests and did well, but I burned out so hard. No, this was back-end stuff, so it was pro-pro, pro-to-pro, like, conversations. Uh, and, and we had contacts luxury. at all of the big industries luxury. and direct lines. Yeah, it was it was fine. Um, but I left and, like, went off and did whatever degree I was doing next. Uh, and, but, like, I came back re- for the summer, rehired hired as a sub as a contract worker at double what they'd paid me for a salary and worked two months like training all the people they had hired to try to replace (laughs) me um and pulled bank and then went back to continue my education again so yeah i yeah it was like i i pretty i I can work a system if it's if it's presented to me in such a way um which is not to say that i i'm not glad i I don't have those kinds of jobs anymore but it's just to say that i uh i'm I'm fine with them. At least I used to be. I don't know if I could do it now. Uh, so that that's that's my general sort of work experience. Um, and I am self-motivated and self-actualized, which in most jobs can work against you, but you know yes, also yeah. can make you rise to the top really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the yeah, that's, that's why I always did best yeah. in sales jobs or in management because self-motivated and self-actualized are good in those jobs where they're not in other jobs. In a lot of other ones. Uh, so all that to say, so that what the time came for me to do this transition between. Um, a career, one career to the next, to becoming a full-time author. Uh, I actually was doing that transition between academic and uh, an art, an art. Like so, that that was like I was stopping in the middle of my or near the end of my PhD and leaving academia. I had no actual like normal day job thing going on when I was making this transition. Uh, and so for me, I had six months living expenses saved up. Um, I had a supportive partner at the time who was very, very gainfully employed. Uh, and I had a New York Times bestseller. And that was the moment at which I decided, and, and two contracts in the works. So the continuation of the Solace series and the Finishing School series was in negotiations. Mm-hmm. And that was what it took for me to feel like fiscally stable enough to jump from and and I didn't even leave leave I took a leave of absence from my it just became occasionally, infinite yeah that became that just never stopped uh, occasionally my professor would call me up and be like your teapot is still here will you ever come back again um, <laughs> she's retired now so I think uh, that's not going to happen I did go back and teach though because did you ever um, get your teapot back no they still have it they the, and the you did go on a few 
you did go off on a few digs after that as yep. well. Yeah. Um, so I still went on, I went on a couple of digs because I'd, I'd said I would. And also I really liked the excavation. And uh, I also went back and taught because I have a, the, you know, you know how it gets in mm -hmm. academia where you have a specific a degree in a specific subject. The, my subject is something that is very common in uh, archaeology. So it's ceramics and lithic analysis uh, or inorganics. And it, for those who don't know, most archaeological sites, the largest deposits are ceramics. You have to have a background in ceramics. If you're going to graduate with an archaeology degree, you have to take at least a senior seminar level course in the subject. And there was a point at which I was the only person within like a 50 mile radius qualified to teach <laughs> that course. <laughs> and my professor got a grant and wanted to go off and do something. And, and the department was basically like, please just come back and run the senior seminar. Um, and I'd done it a couple times before and I was like, sure, no problem. Um, you know, so it's that sort of situation. So that's yeah. our backgrounds. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. the transition. So um, what was it like? I mean, I, I'm going to quickly just say one of the things I warn people is, is exactly this. And I'm glad you're thinking about it. But you really should seriously think about when you turn a hobby into a profession mm -hmm. because it does change everything about that. Um, and now I will pass along to Dan to talk about. Yeah, it. and it has, and how it changes it is going to have a lot to do with your relationship with ambition and money. Because if you experience, um, if you experience the necessity of making a living as a form of oppression, um, then transferring that onto your own shoulders instead of subcontracting out all of the little worries that come with running your own business, especially a high-risk business like the arts where everything is either feast or famine, um, that's going to be a really, really hard row for you to hoe. On the other hand, if work is something that brings you joy and it brings you enough joy that you're willing to put up with the difficulty that comes with having to manage yourself and having to deal with feast or famine and having to do all your own bookkeeping, then you're going to do really well, even if you're not terribly successful for a while, because you've got the right internal motivational structure for the move across to allow you to continue to, to increase your productivity as you move and also to have the internal latitude to scramble to fill the gaps when it's not making ends meet. I think you need to have a certain amount of flexibility under yes. those circumstances. And that means flexibility in your creative output uh -huh. as well. And, and Dan, you're an illustration of, of this. Like you have other things you can do to earn money. You are always learning new skill sets like welding or what have you, but also you're willing to write nonfiction in order mm -hmm. to. I love like, writing earn, nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but I think I think there are some writers who get into trouble because they're like, I want to write dystopian sci-fi yeah. YA. That's all I want to write, and I want to make a living at it. And that is going to be a lot hard. If you're that inflexible in what you create, you're hmm. going to have a much harder time. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a playing the odds thing. That yeah, one particular niche genre is going to go big at some point in your life, most likely. Are you going to be able to make a living when it's not going big? Are you that good? Are you willing to put in the work to become that good and starve in the process or do other things along the way? Um, 
if if you're pegging yourself that narrowly, if you're looking at someone like um, Kim Stanley Robinson or Neil Stevenson or someone who is that narrowly focused, the reason that they're big names is that they are so good at what they do, whether that's your genre or not. They're so good at what they do that they have basically been able to form a core cult around themselves, as well as the broader audience that comes in and out depending on when that sort of story is in fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, if The 10,000 fans old rule, and you can go read e- that. Uh, exactly. Essay. But if you're... Yeah, Okay, yeah. So what you said and what I said got together in my head, and I think this might be a good rule of thumb to fall out of this. If the reason that you want to go full-time as a writer is because you want to be your own boss, you like being in control of your own destiny, and you want the latitude that having other that having um, – fewer external impositions on your consciousness will give you, then you might be the right kind of person to do it. If your writing is an escape and you don't easily make your own structure and the prospect of looking over the abyss of the prospect of looking over the financial abyss and knowing that at some point in your life, there's going to be two months from now when you're homeless, if you don't scramble like hell, unless you've got a spouse who's got a regular job. And I should point out that at the moment, Kitty has a regular job, but that's not always been the case. There've been many years where she's had no job and has been working on her stuff. And I've been scrambling, scrambling, scrambling to keep us in house and home. Um, We go back and forth on that. If you've got a partner who's willing to sponsor you and be your patron, that's another situation entirely as well. But you want to think about where your motivation structure comes in and what kinds of things make you shut down versus open up. If you Hmm. open up under pressure instead of shut down, you're going to do a lot better. (laughs) I'd I'd like to interject. Yes, please. And maybe sum up. Um, In my observation and from what I've picked up in, in basically every small business and arts business um, education that I've encountered, most of the success is persistence, head games, and um, time management. Talent. Mm-hmm. Talent makes a difference too. I'm, I'm sorry, but like if you, what you've written is crappy. Like it doesn't matter if you're the greatest salesperson in the world. Eventually readers <laughs> you will, will figure eventually that out run out of road. Yep. Like you do have to be a good writer. I'm sorry. I, I know this is like the dirty thing that especially in the indie community, nobody talks about, but, but you really actually do have to be able to write. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the other thing, um, I, this is the reason that I wrote the, wrote my little booklet business 101 is because the, hardest thing that I've noticed that most people have in making the leap is not necessarily the word count. It's learning the difference between being an employee and running a business. When you're an employee, you have a paycheck. You can budget to a paycheck. You can run your monthly expenses right up to the limit and you know that the chances are really good that next month you're still going to have that money. When you're running your own business, You have to consider every day the possibility that next month, Amazon's going to change its payout rates. Yep. 
um, two months or, from now. Or red flag, or dungeon you, and you yeah, might or, not get, yep, you know, or, and if 80% of your income is coming from Amazon yep. and they dungeon you for two months, mm-hmm. that's like, yeah, that's or sh- eating. Or, or shadow <laughs> ban you from searches. That happens too. Or what if there is a major event that sucks all the entertainment air out of the room because, for example, there's a highly contentious election and all your sales drop for three months. Or there's a plague and everybody's panicking and no one wants to read your genre right now. Or all of these things happen. They happen all the time when you're in business for yourself. When you're an employee, you're subcontracting these worries out to somebody else. When you're in business for yourself, you cannot treat your income as your living. Your income is your reserve with which to build up other forms of passive income and your cushions for hard times and to reduce your ongoing overhead so that when hard times hit, you can drop your optional expenses down very low and you can do very well. It's kind of the financial equivalent of what Kitty and I had to do when we were snowed in here for half this month. It was actually a month, but it started in December. We couldn't go get groceries for a month. But because we live out here and we know that that's a thing that happens, and because I grew up in the Bay Area where big earthquakes happen, we have several months worth of food on hand at any given time. And the financial equivalent of that is necessary to be able to run a small business without having it kill you. Yeah, we're talking about having an emergency reserve fund and six months living expenses and also and knowing what you live when you live lean. So like what is the like what can you give up? Yep. Um, and it, under these circumstances, there are you, you may be at a life stage, you may have all sorts of things that too many dependents, all sorts of things that just make this choice completely illogical. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you with your life. You can still make this choice, but just be aware that, that you know, you're higher and higher risk. So this is all about risk management and risk yeah. factors. From exactly. a, I know. Yep. Yeah. And, and as like, I just have a couple of notes that are sort yeah, of like probably a little bit of repeats of what you said, but I always give this piece of advice when people ask me whether as a hybrid author, whether I would recommend going with Trad or going with Indie, but I think it also is germane to this conversation which is you need to really self-examine your your yourself as a personality how you are like intellectually instinctively and emotionally around money and finances like how is that as the person how because that is going to have a huge impact like are a lot of your relationship battles about finances? Like, what does that say about you as a person, how you feel about money? Everybody is, most people I know, especially in American society, are very emotional around money. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to sort of unpack that and acknowledge it, but really self-reflect. That would be my first piece of advice. And then my second piece of advice is how are you about your art? Whether that art is writing, how are you about that as a creator? How do you feel emotionally when I tell you you're going to have to start to think about your books as product and your books as assets? Because that is how the rest of the world, whether you're going to go to trad or whether you're going to be indie, that's how the rest of the world treats you and them as product and asset. And those are different things. It's another conversation, but, but how does that emotionally make you feel? Can you cope with that? Like, like I think for me, because I come as a potter, as a ceramicist, as well as all this other thing, I was very used to creating an object and then just selling it. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing I can do after that pot. Someone can use it for a chamber pot. 
somebody's going to drop it and break it. It's out of like, that's it. I have to let it go, this piece mm -hmm. of art that I've created. And so it's not quite the same thing for writing because you are generating digital multiples and, and print multiples. But still, there is this divorcing you're going to have to psychologically do around this, which is you send it out in the world and people will package it how they want. They're going to take it how they want. They're going to review it how they want. There's, you can't control any of that. Yeah. So the thing that really works in your favor in terms of especially indie, which is being good at control and setting processes and systems in place is going to work against you once you've let go of your manuscript. Yes, and so yeah. that is a balance that's very hard to cope with. And, and, and it and is yeah. a learning strategy. And it's, and it's taken personally because I am a control freak and I am a perfectionist. That is the aspect of making a living off of my writing that it has been the balance that's hardest for me to hit correctly. And I, I'm getting there. I'm a decade in and I think I'm finally just like, oh, you know, Ingram is being Ingram. I'm just going to have to deal with it. Whereas you, that would spiral me into depression and anger and tears for days. And now I'm just like, oh, they're just everything, something goes wrong with every book. It's just the way it is. You know? Yep. And there's, there's another sting in the tail there too, if you have any degree of success which is that it's not just your works that's a product, it's the image that your fans have of you. Oh, those brands to consider. And it, yeah, and it's, any t we all know this as fans, right? We pick up a book, it speaks to our hearts, and we start, sort of grow this fantasy relationship with the author in our head. Not with the real author, but with the version we imagine must exist because of the effect they had on us. It's called a parasocial relationship. And Gail, you and I have both known authors who made the mistake of being captured by their audience's image of them, believing their own PR, and nuking their careers and or their personal lives as a result. And it's mm -hmm. a real danger. And you don't have it to is. be super successful for that to happen. We've seen this happen with people who had a core fan base of one or 2,000 people. It's not hard, especially if you're someone who has been starved for approval in other parts of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing to consider as well. Yeah. How fragile is your own ego? How is that ego built? Uh, that sort of like, you know, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome, those, those sorts of things. Yep. I mean, I, again, I have like little notes when we're having this conversation, but um, you know, in terms of the thing, the personality traits that I think have particularly helped me on this transition journey, I'm very organized and I'm very system and I'm very um, into like spreadsheets and stuff like that. And I think that has particularly given me a leg up as a hybrid author over a lot of other authors who made the transition between trad and indie. Um, so, but that I'm aware that it is a personality trait that is not necessarily associated with a lot of creatives. Um, well, and then the and other I, two, two things that I think I rely on the most as a full-time writer of fiction is self-motivation and self-discipline. Yes. But to bring it back around to this podcast, you can see that that is something that as much as I am, both of those things, I also outsource. Like I ask Dan to invite me on his podcast so that I can be accountable to him. So I look for ways to sort of hack my own hangups in the arena of things like motivation, discipline, and flexibility, because I know these are both some of my strengths, but also the places where 
I will be weak where my weaknesses lie in terms mm-hmm. of like innate laziness and things yeah, like and, that. And for, for me, the personality traits that keep me going through all of the businesses I've been in myself and through writing is I'm stubborn and I'm incredibly curious and I'm fairly, when I want to be, callous. I can turn on the I don't give a fuck and that insulates me from a lot of the dangers that other writers that I've known have fallen into, which is nice. But on the other hand, it means that I'm more prone to continuing in a, in, uh, along a path that is obviously going to be fruitless longer than I should. Mm-hmm. It means that uh-huh. the U-shinies can be a danger, especially when I am frustrated or semi-blocked on a project. I have had to learn to deliberately not start new projects when that's happening. Otherwise, I get the piling up of unfinished books. And, um, you know, if you, and if I keep the don't give a fuck shields up in the wrong context, it's really bad for my personal relationships. So. Yes. Yeah. Workaholicism is, is very much a problem for me as well, uh, to the detriment of everything else, including my own health. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is another thing to sort of self-examine about. And this is hard to predict because we don't know what the future is like when you have transitions from, from a day job to making your hobby, your profession or making your art, your profession. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is trying to identify where your weaknesses are um, and not, not (laughs) of course, not self attacking in terms of things like imposter syndrome or whatever, but just being like, like for me, uh, it took me longer than it should to get an assistant. Um, And that's because I genuinely enjoyed the social media. I really do like interacting with my fans. They think they're cool and awesome. And we do share all of these interests, you know, like fashion or whatever, but then I'm spending four, eight, hours a day on social media chatting with people, which is great fun, but Mm -hmm. I haven't written anything. (laughs) Um, And so I had to learn that to identify that, which is a strength, like my social media presence is great. And I have awesome fan groups and stuff like that, but is also a profound weakness because it detracts from my writing. So like I I do sort of like guided kind of business strengths, weeks and self-reflections at the, at the beginning of every year to sort of get my writer goals in order and try and figure out what aspect of this faintly wooey side of my personality I'm going to be working on. Like, for example, one year was the year of me learning just to say no, like just learn to just say no, not have to offer an excuse, just turn it down. Cause I was just getting like too many speaking offers and all this other stuff. And I just right. didn't have the bandwidth, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, like learning your weaknesses and then coming up with strategies to compensate for them. It was, it was interesting. Actually, I was, I was in a Facebook, I'm in a couple of mastermind type Facebook groups as an author with other authors and somebody asks, you know, what were the like three things you would change about your career or whatever. And uh, my, one of mine was learning to say no (laughs) earlier. The another one was getting a newsletter up and running sooner. Um, And my third one was subcontracting, like just, just, and, and then the, the, another question was, if you had an unlimited budget to spend, what would you do with it? Like, would you go all in on ads? What would you do? And I was like, oh, I would, I would get subcontractors. I would just mm-hmm. hire like everything I don't like doing. I would like to find and hire someone else to do it. Yeah. Like everything, including things that I'm very like possessively ownership of, like up uploading to vendors or whatever like right yeah, now I'd, nobody I'd, I'd hire that. i'd hire someone to clean the audio right it's the yeah, one part everything. of the audio process I, I hate and it takes forever it's like 25 percent of the time of the production of the whole book is just the post-production audio cleanup not the editing just you know making normalizing the signal and all of that because there's so much footage 
And yeah. oh, I'd, I'd hire someone to do that in a hot second. See, so, so, and that's, and, but, you know, if you know these things, then that is also identifying where your weaknesses are, you know, like, so I have a propensity to do things like put off tasks that I should do regularly, but, and, and it is on me to do them. There's things I cannot be outsourced to my assistant, but like, it's just, it just becomes a Herculean task. That's just such a pain, you know, like I need to upload my next release right now. And I just, hate it. It's just time consuming and annoying. And every vendor wants slightly different information. Oh, and I know. One of them is going to take that, it back you know, to me. With all the people we know in the tech industry, you think one of them would be like, oh yeah, I'll make a, a little uh, database uploady plug that'll just give you the, that'll take your data and organize it for each of these places. But nobody does that. No, it's it's different for everybody. They have different fields called different things. You yeah, know? And, they <laughs> like want, and they don't allow the same a, information either. Yeah, someone allows the subtitle. Somebody else doesn't allow a subtitle. Mm. Someone allows a series name. Someone else doesn't allow. Like it's just, and oh, you're just like just nobody. Yeah. So it's just one of those things where where I'm like, it just takes a day to upload a thing, and I have to put aside the time. Um, and that's you know something I would outsource, but. And, and and as a result, I put these things off until I can't anymore. And then it becomes oh. an obligation and I hate it. The thing that would fix that is if these places would allow a secondary login that didn't allow you access to the tax or bank account information. Then like a password check. Right. We could hire out uh, you know, people on Fiverr to do the uploads. Precisely. Or, or I could just have my assistant do it or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, um, what were we saying with this? Oh, this, this, this is the aspect of turning your hobby into a full-time job. Is your hobby, which right now relieves your stress and is exciting and interesting, if you turn it into a full-time job, the actual writing itself might still be enjoyable, delightful, and yep. pleasant and fantastic. But there are going to be all of these other things that when you're not dependent on it for your income, you can ignore or put off or mm -hmm. wait until you have a whole series written and they've changed the platforms again. But when you're dependent on it for your living, you have to do them. And so the, and they build up all of those and, things. And build. the more successful you are, the more of them there are. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you can outsource, but there's always going to be there. Trust me, I have outsourced so much, but there still are. There's always going to be something that rears its head that only you can deal with. Like yep. I've had a legal copyright infringement issue that I've had to be on email this whole month back and forth with my lawyer and my agent like, oh, and the infringer. And, you know, I'm, I can't say very much about it, but like I can't outsource that, that to anyone. I have to make the, the decisions if we're going to settle or if we're going to go for a class action lawsuit or whatever. Like, and, and, and that, is right now and that is a unique kind of case this is only like the third or fourth of this kind of thing i've had to deal with in my career but it next month it will be something else it will trust absolutely me absolutely will um and that's the bit that is stressful um and especially if you're a bit of a control freak um and that's the bit that makes the hobby challenging once it's once it's a job is it is a job and all of the things that are stressful about jobs you might lose those when you're self-employed, but um, but new stresses are going to come along, yeah. unfortunately. You're, the responsibility hits in different areas, and there's nobody to hold you to it. It's all you. And this is 
honestly, this is not just indie. I've had just as many problems, if not more, with traditional. You know, they'll put a cover you don't like. They'll change your back cover copy without telling you. They'll print your book missing the first page. They'll print your book with the spine misspelled. And, you know, and you're the author on the cover. So everyone complains to you no matter what. And like, so yeah, don't expect everything goes wrong with a book. Something goes wrong with every book, no mm -hmm. matter what, <laughs> whether it's indie or trash. And one of the nice things about indie rest. is one of the nice things about indie is that you can actually fix it, as, as opposed to just getting blamed for it. No, you can't if Amazon's KDP dashboard is down for a week, right? Well, like, you that. can't if ACX has decided mm -hmm. to advertise returns on all of your audiobooks all of a sudden. Oh God, you know, don't like, get me started on that one again. <laughs> right like you can't like I, I, like people will say you know the great thing about indie is it is a lot more autonomy and a lot more control and yeah but there's still there's big still those big black holes with an yep. agenda to make money off of you and they do yep. and they go down and they do stupid things you know like it's just this it's it's yeah it's just a different kind of problem that you're going to encounter um Unfortunately, I mean, you can club together with other authors who are all having the same issue and mm -hmm. complain in a Facebook group. If you, if you got <laughs> enough of you that are writing in similar genres, you can put together a little book club and share readers. And sometimes that can be very profitable. Mm. Yes, that's true. That's true. Story bundles and things like that. There's, there's always workarounds and other things you can do and other ways to diversify and changes to the industry and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is like, I feel like the other thing that served both of us in this transition is a certain amount of pivot ability to use the business yeah. term, but flexibility in terms of not just personality, but also our business behaviors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when a new platform pops up, am, am I willing to bounce over and try find a way? Like, sure I am, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm about to try using Draft2Digital to do a paperback book. I've never done that before. It's going to be interesting. We'll see how it goes. Probably are frustrating. They, are, Very are, they, are they charging the uh, Ingram fee for no, that? No. Oh, I think I've just fallen in love. <laughs> but it, but they will if you do too many like the first upload or whatever they there's you read the, they have a disclaimer there's thing a bandwidth limitation only a certain number of titles yeah they can only seconds. absorb a certain amount and then and then if you keep correcting your own print book they're gonna start charging you which I gotcha. think is fair yeah um, and also it's lean so like the flexibility in different editions and hardbacks and all that sort of thing they're only really offering what what create space slash mm -hmm. print. Right. Um, offers in terms of sizes and all right. that. Right. Whereas of stuff. if you so, go over to Ingram on its own, you can get mass market trims and whatnot. You can do tons of stuff. Just yeah. It's way priced as well. Yeah. yeah. But I'll let you know how it goes. One of the things I do. haven't figured out is whether there's a proof copy version available. So I might be just flying blind, but I'm like, at this point with print, I'm like, whatever it's borked anyway <laughs> like <laughs> the print industry is bonkers right now so really who cares <laughs> um yeah but so all that to say that like the i am really trying to develop the skill set and i think i already had this and i think this is partly a, com a comedy author this is the laughing at the funeral thing not to bring it back around or mm -hmm. anything but of taking a problem and being like how do i turn this to advantage yes. you know like Oh, this system is Amazon is now forcing me to do this thing. Yeah, but yeah, but can I use that as an excuse to streamline processes at, yes. on this end? Or okay, they want a tagline. I'm gonna now develop perfect taglines. Like that's mm -hmm. gonna be my new skill set is an elevator pitch for yep. the opening line, you know. 
there However, is, it is. There, there is little in business more important than the willingness and ability to take any setback you're offered and find a way to turn it into an upside. Precisely. Yeah, and, and I'll give a great example. This is a very long episode. Sorry, Dan, for the editing, but I'll give a perfect example from a business end for anybody out there listening. But Amazon had an issue with ACX, which is their audiobook SS portal, um, where it was taking something on the order of three months for an oh, audiobook God, to be uploaded. Yeah, it, Do you remember it, when they this held, They held one of mine eight months. It was, it was absurd. Awful. Um, and they were holding it at the QC stage, at the quality uh, control stage. So, you know, it, it, clearly they were having personnel issues and process yeah. issues. And we don't know, obviously, Amazon never tells us what's going on, but we didn't know what was happening. But all authors were experiencing this. A few people were like, it's only taken me a month, you know. But normally it's 10 days. Like prior to that, it had been 10 days. Yep. And now it, it's And back. sometimes less than 10 days even. Yeah. Yeah. But, but anyway, so there was this, this enormous delay and everyone was frustrated about it. And my brain was like, okay, how do we take advantage of this? And I was like, well, the the law, at, you know, at the time, I don't know if Amazon's changed it, but the TOS at the time was once the book is for sale, it's mm -hmm. exclusive to Amazon. And I was like, well, it's you guys holding this book off sale. It's not me, this audiobook. Uh -huh. So what I did is I turned around and I offered it direct sale to anybody who wanted it. Mm -hmm. until Amazon got their shit together, yep. right? <laughs> um, um, and uh, it worked great. And anybody who complained to me that the book wasn't available, because I generally speaking try and time my audiobooks around when my print and digital are mm -hmm. close to, so they knew it was delayed, but they didn't. But the readers and listeners didn't know what was actually going on with Amazon. And so anytime anybody emailed me, I was like, oh, you could just buy that from me direct, and you own the MP3, and Amazon yep. can never take it away from you, and it's yours for life. Uh -huh. um, and so it, it worked awesome. A bunch of people jumped over to my direct sales and bought. And so they got used to the system that way. Um, and I basically just said to anyone who, who would listen, you know, I'm going to do this for all my audiobooks going forward. So before now, it doesn't matter how long Amazon's going to take for two weeks prior mm -hmm. to me even uploading it to them, you can buy it directly from me. Yep. It's yours. You can own it for life. The only way you know about it, though, is if you're on my newsletter. So you have to be along to the newsletter to get that link to purchase it. And, uh, and you can buy it ahead of time. And now it's become a new part of my process and system. So this whole thing that had everybody upset. and you know, Turned with, into a profit like, center for you, especially when you consider yes. that the margin that you get back, even if you're exclusive with ACX, the margin that you get back is lower than what you make off an ebook which is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But whereas, whereas when you sell it yourself through Gumroad, you're getting 90, 95% of the sticker price. Yep, exactly. Um, and, and the, and my listeners were universally delighted. They're like delighted to yep. own it. Many people who don't normally, weirdly, because they're awesome, a bunch of them bought it to own it, but also then when it came up on Audible, used their Audible chips to listen to it. Probably because they wanted it in their Audible player as well. Yeah, they, they wanted liked their it Audible playlist. So, yeah, so they paid me double, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and, now I, and now they're all trained, so, you know, so they know how to get it easily. They know how to sideload it. They've all figured that out. Um, and they and they all know to expect it on the newsletter as well. They're like, oh, you guys get the audiobook first, and you get it directly if you want it. And um, that was all because Amazon was worked at the time. So 
but that's like that it's a muscle that I have taken a long time to train and really try because I still get annoyed or frustrated off the bat when something goes wrong, like has recently happened with Ingram. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, okay, this is an opportunity. What's, what is it an opportunity for? Mm -hmm. Like, what is, what is it? And I was like, oh, this is an opportunity to try draft a digital print. Like that's my opportunity. That's what I'm going to take this as. So yeah, that, that's the other like skills that you will probably need to develop if you go self-employed in, in general, but mm -hmm. particularly if you turn a hobby yeah. into a profession. Yeah. And, and it really is self-employed in general. And I'll give you a, a, a non-writing business example. When Kitty and I decided that we were going to be getting some land, we realized we needed a farm truck. And when it comes to farm trucks, there is a particular kind of truck that is really hard to find that every mechanic I talked to said, if you want something that'll last until you die, you want this. And I looked around and there was no way I could afford it. We wound up stuck out in Maine for a couple of years and the neighbor had one of these trucks literally rusting to death in his junk pile. And so I went over and I asked him, does it still run? And he said, well, start it up and find out. So I started it up. <laughs> it worked fine. It was just literally rusted out because it's the Northeast and everything rusts there because they salt the roads like crazy. And so I thought, you know, one of the skills I don't have is metalworking, and I'm going to need it for what we're doing. This particular vehicle needs almost no mechanical work, I thought. It turned out to need a bit, but that was good practice too, but needs a lot of metalwork. So if I restore this, if I can get this for a steal and restore it, I'll be way ahead because I'll get the education I need. I'll save thousands of dollars on this thing, and I did that, and oh boy, was it a project way bit off way more than I could chew but I did finish it and I learned my metalworking and I wound up once once all the tools were counted that I had to buy for it I still wound up about seven thousand dollars ahead of where I would have if I had bought something in the condition I restored it to and now I've got a truck that'll last forever it's still in Maine and I've got to get it here <laughs> because I wound up without enough space to bring it back, but it's coming. And, uh, well, not, not, not to take that as a case in point, but on an aside, that's the other thing you have to learn to do. And I think this is where I was helped by being a scientist, which is, mm -hmm. uh, you have to learn to accept failure as well yes. to just, and to learn how to quit and not quit when you're ahead, but just be like, Oh, that one. You know, and I've I've done this with a couple of books where I've just been like, this is not going to work for my reader base. Or yep. It's not going to sell or it's going to be too much work to clean it back up and get it up to my current standards. You know, I just, away it goes. I spent three months writing it and I just have to take that as like, we've talked about before, but like unpacking some emotional baggage and a writer exercise for me and away it goes. Um, and that will happen with vendor platforms, social media platforms that you jump on, you think are going to be the next great thing. And you're like, no, you know, like I jumped on, mm -hmm. on TikTok and I was like, this is not for me. And I know some authors are killing it and I can't bear the idea. <laughs> like, you know, so I hold my SEO on TikTok, but I, I don't, you know, participate that kind of thing. And, yeah. and that's, that is a failure, but that's okay. Um, as a scientist, I'm like experiments fail all the time. You've learned something you've learned. I don't, I'm not a TikTok person. That's what I've learned. You know, um, I, I 
I need to write dark sometimes, but I'm not going to be able to sell it. You know, that's what I learned with this thing, right? So, you know, that that is the the kind of I guess the, my final piece of advice is that uh, as Americans in particular, we have this like failure is such a dirty idea and such a dirty word. You have to be willing to fail. You just lot. have to be willing to fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just Indeed. move on to the next thing because that's the other thing. That's the good side about being a creative yep. is there's always more. There's always, always something another, new. Always a new series. Always a new vendor. Always yep. a new idea. And that gives me where, where I want to end on this. There's always something new after the failure. And, the th- and one thing to remember about that is your failures are not discrete. Every failure you learn something from, you take a tool or a a skill or practice at something forward to your next thing. You're not starting over from scratch every time. And one thing I've seen knock both small business people and writers back time and again is that, oh, I've failed and now I have to start over. No, you don't. You're not starting over. You're doing the next thing. It's an iterative process. Yeah. That failure is a building block of a kind. That's right. Always. Yeah. I mean, I was, <laughs> this is such a long podcast, but I was, I was uh, talking about my previous research with somebody recently, which I don't talk about very much. And I did a, a fingerprinting on Galena, um, which was, it was ICPMS, inductively coupled mass spectrometry. And I was, I was so I'm looking at trace elements in Galena, which is a lead deposit to see if it had been transferred. And what I was interested in finding out as to whether they were trading raw materials or only finished products. So mm-hmm. that's a very short way of putting this. But it turns out I was fingerprinting for titanium, and it turns out that it's in a leaded ore, the trace elements were just non-distinguishable enough, and it was just too difficult. So I spent most of a semester trying to do this, and it's not successful. It can't, in this particular instance, and probably in general, it cannot be done, what I was trying to do. That is an absolute failure. But it is also a scientific building block in that we have learned you cannot use titanium to fingerprint for galena right. lead deposits. It's <laughs> like now I know that the scientists who were you know down in the chemistry department know that we all know that. <laughs> this and the knowledge will propagate out. out to the rest of the archaeological community. Precisely, and 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 some of the other you know uh, uh, you know geology communities as well mm-hmm. and things like for ore ore studies and stuff. Um, and, you know, so like put a pin in it, check, did not learn anything archaeological, learned something scientific. And that's, you know, and that's what most failures are like. Like they may seem like a big deal failure for you, for your creativity, your, you know, your creative product or your personality or your business. But they've always yeah. taught you something and, and probably taught you something that might be useful information you will get to disseminate to other authors mm-hmm. going forward. And you may well. not realize what it taught you for a good long time, but you have to trust that you are smart enough to have picked up lessons you can't yet articulate. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. To this day, sometimes somebody will mention something in an author forum and I'll be like, Oh my God, that happened to me like six uh-huh. years ago. <laughs> I dealt with it and it was pretty seamless. Here's what I did, you know? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, hopefully it'll be helpful to somebody else, even if it's not you. Uh, Kitty, do you have any final thoughts? I have to get going here uh, in about no, 10 minutes. So. Nope, I don't. Okay. Any final thoughts, Gail? No, it was a great final episode, though. I look forward to doing this. I guess we're doing it again in November. I hope so. Yes, I should have power and everything by then, so that'll be good. 
Fantastic. Uh, and uh, meantime, we should get together again on our regular schedule and keep writing Absolutely. together. Absolutely. And everybody, get back to writing. Let's all be writing. In the Immortal Woods of Myrrh, we should be writing. Absolutely. See you later. Bye-bye.